What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today we have a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. We're doing this on the early morning here. I got this weird, like, ghost lighting. Looks like I'm telling, like, ghost stories or something like that, but it is what it is. When we put the background light on, it just doesn't look really good. And so thank you to everybody who asked a question. I'm going to go through as many of these as I can in a reasonable amount of time. Depending how many tangents I go on, maybe we can get through all of them. Jeez, uh, that is doubtful, but I'm hopeful. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, first question, I won't read names. Uh, any resources for training and nutrition in pregnancy? Absolutely. Uh, Brianna Battles, I think her Instagram is at Brianna.Battles, would be my resource. That's somebody that's been my go-to for questions that I have uh, and resources along the way. Uh, she was also on my podcast. Uh, I've also been on her podcast. She's she's wonderful. Uh, really, really good wealth of knowledge and has a lot of good resources, offers coaching, all of that good stuff as well. I'll, I'll link... Um, I'll link uh, the podcast with her in the description and I'll put her Instagram in there as well. Next question, uh, female, 30% body fat, goals are fat loss and muscle gain, not at the same time, of course, which by the way, could be possible. Um, three years uh, or more lifting, how would you recommend to periodize the next year or two? Um, and I remember I reached out and I asked you if you meant more of like a nutrition side of things or from a training side of things. From a training side of things, the question would have been different. It would have been a lot of, well, don't, I don't think that periodization, it depends what the goal is. Let's say if it was hypertrophy, then I don't think much, if any, periodization is necessary or even beneficial outside of potential fun. Um, from a from a nutrition standpoint, I have a lot of questions. And I think that that's the tough part here. The, the question is like, how how lean does this person want to get? They're, they're 30% body fat. Um, that's not that's not like an alarming in any way, you know, body size or body fatness to me. Uh, and so I'm not, I'm not like, I don't know where this person is, wants to go from here. If this person wants to get to 25% body fat or so, you might be able to just do that in one shot, right? You may be able to do that in one concise deficit. Um, and the method in which you go about setting up the length of your deficit, the expectations of your deficit, the size and rate of fat loss that you'd like is very personal. Um, I'm not even sure that we should be setting like hard timelines. A lot of people are like, set a timeline, get in, get out like that. And I've even said that I totally have been in a place where that's been something I've recommended, but I'm not, I'm not so sure, you know, if, if we're really like if this is more somebody who's like, hey, I'd really like to lose some weight and keep it off forever. And this is like a once in a, you know, something I want to do once. This isn't like part of my cyclical dieting of bulking and cutting and bulking and cutting. And, you know, I'm not doing this for like fun and fitness. I'm doing this for like health. Um, then I would look at it a little bit differently. And I would look at it with less of a timeline, more of a, this is fucking forever sort of thing. And I need to make sure that, um, you know, I'm taking care of my mental health and relationship with food along the way. And that I'm not doing anything that I can't see myself, you know, uh, doing forever in, at least in some regard. And so I, I would actually have a lot of follow-up questions. I, I actually think the periodization of nutrition is, it, it, to me, it, I don't want to use diet culture or like fit culture, but it that, that is not necessarily something that applies to the, I want to get healthy and stay healthy crowd, which is 99.999% of the population. Um, I don't think we need to be like, hey, eight weeks of maintenance, three week reverse, 12 week, ma uh, uh, eight week deficit, three week ma uh, reverse, 12 week maintenance, and then eight week this. And we need to plan out the next two years with this like exact where we're going to be and, and titrating calories through different phases. Like to me, having worked with enough of these, like I want to get healthy and stay healthy people, like which by the way, is like where like 
that is most of the people in the world. And if we're trying to do the most good, I want, really want to make sure we're helping those people. Um, that I don't know that we need to be doing this. Like, I'm not so sure we need to be thinking about planning out the next two years. Um, I think we need to be focusing on, you know, uh, this person's relationship with food, building good habits, uh, you know, new foundational behaviors that will aid in their ability to sustain whatever changes they make. If this is a person who's like, again, you said 30% body fat. I don't know if that's like, that's like, hey, I just finished a bulk and that's where I'm at. And I want to do a bit more of like the cyclical dieting because I'm looking for long time, long term body recomposition changes. Um, I'm not worried about like, you know, letting myself get to an unhealthy body fat range or anything like that. It's just like all totally autonomous, something that I can do on my own. And, um, yeah, that, that would be a different story. And, and still, even if that were the case, it's still very personal. Um, you know, how, how aggressive does this person enjoy cutting? You know, how aggressive does this person enjoy bulking? Are there timelines that this person needs to like external things that this person needs to adhere to? Are they like, Hey, I really don't want to be like peak bulk weight over the summer. And, you know, I have this wedding over here. I I don't want to be peak bulk weight. Like, and so, uh, I'm not, necessarily sure I have a lot of questions if this is a person that's like I want to get healthy and stay healthy then I don't think a lot of this periodization is is not just necessary it's just not what I would do I would be focused I'd be focused way more on this person's behaviors and their headspace relationship with food their environment the people around them support systems like resetting like uh just like the way they think about food and exercise and building good foundational habits like that to me is way more important than like, you know, taking out a calendar and trying to map out the next two years. That's more of like a, a bodybuilder style mentality, uh, you know, who's like voluntarily doing cyclical dieting for a net body recomposition improvement over time, like, which is fine that that in that context is that makes sense to me. Uh, so I would want to know more. That's all. Next question. Is carb cycling actually an effective way to lose fat? I see it promoted all over IG. Yeah, good question. Really simple answer. There's literally zero, like literally zero benefit of carb cycling over over not carb cycling if calories and protein are equated. And so this idea that there's a benefit to having higher and lower carb days inherently outside of just calories and protein is untrue. So totally not true. Um, if you are eating 2000 calories and you are eating, let's say the same macros every day, for example, uh, whether you're tracking them or not, or you're like eating the same calories and protein on average, but some days are high carb, some days are low carb. It's literally irrelevant. Um, most of the time, carb cycling is just a way, like a repackaged way of calorie cycling. And so carb cycling typically means like on my higher carb days, that means I'm having higher calories. And my lower carb days, it means I'm having lower calories. Um, that also is not inherently better. If you average out the calories, it's going to be exactly the same thing. And so if you have 2,000 calories on one day and 2,400 calories on another day, it's the same as averaging 2,200 calories, like regardless of how you're splitting that up. If calories and protein are equated, you're going to see the same results. That is why I recommend actually just counting calories and protein in almost all contexts, Um uh, I've actually been doing this for a long time and just have never had somebody who was counting the macros switch to calories and protein and not think that it was the most amazing thing ever, like quality of life enhancing strategy. Um, So yeah, that's my opinion on that. What's the next question? What's the purpose of looking at data on a macro cycle? Um, I'm going to 
take a couple liberties here. I don't necessarily know exactly what you're referring to, but if you're talking about a macro cycle, which is like a string of mesocycles. So people are always like, Jordan, what's a mesocycle? Well, when we talk about these words like micro and meso and macro, they're just referring to an amount of time uh, generally. And so when we look at a micro cycle, a micro cycle is like one, it is typically about one week, but really what a micro cycle means is one round of your workouts. So if you're training four days a week, it's one round of those four workouts, which typically we pair with the calendar week. And so a micro cycle is usually a week. I have some friends who train like not in synchronization with the ca- the weekly calendar. They're doing like five workouts over nine days. And so for them, their micro cycle is a nine day micro cycle. And they might do six micro cycles in their mesocycle. Typically, we can talk about this in terms of weeks because most people are doing this within the calendar week, but not everybody. And so I will talk about it in terms of weeks. A microcycle is one week. A mesocycle is X number of microcycles. So maybe six to eight, right? Four to eight microcycles uh, is a mesocycle, which is basically like the time in between deloads. And so a mesocycle is a string of microcycles in between or bookended by deloads. Um, and a macrocycle would be anywhere from like three to five mesocycles strung together where you might have even more of a concise goal. And so you might have a macrocycle where you're specializing glutes and delts. And that might be like three to five mesocycles where that's the thing you're focused on. And that is a macro cycle. You're stringing together mesocycles. Uh, so we're just looking at it on like three different time scales. So what's the purpose of looking at data on a macro cycle? I- I'm going to pretend like you're talking about this topic. Um, I actually think looking at, so what I'll, what I'll reframe this as is like, what's the purpose of looking at meso to meso data. I actually think that that's incredibly important. Not incredibly important. Let me just, let me not make it so grandiose here. But so if you guys are in my group or you know that I have a group, whatever, we use the Train Heroic app. And every time you finish the workout, the Train Heroic app tells you the amount of volume that you lifted. It calculates reps, um, reps times weight, essentially, uh, or sets times reps times weight. So it calculates all the, the all of that that you did. So if you did three by 10 by 100, that would be 3,000, right? Three times 10, 30 times 100, 3,000. Um, and it calculates the total amount of poundage that you've lifted. We call it like total tonnage. Um, and the the thing that the, the thing that cracks me up is that 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 number inherently is irrelevant. Like as a one off, it's irrelevant. You're not in one workout trying to maximize that number. You're not arranging the style of your training to maximize that number. It's not actually something that by itself matters. But where it might matter is if you repeat a mesocycle. So it matters in two ways. It matters from week to week. So if on day one workout one your tonnage was ten thousand pounds. And workout one on week five was 12,000 pounds. So over the course of the mesocycle, the total volume you do on day one goes up. You are doing more, whatever, by the addition of added load or reps, you've managed to progress that workout across the mesocycle. So I really like if you screenshot or you take note of what you did in week one in terms of the total tonnage and you compare it to week five, that's pretty cool and it's it's at least relevant to the fact of like, hey, I've progressed across the mesocycle. I actually think even more so is if you could, which you wouldn't, this is almost like abstract, um, but let's say you added up all the tonnage from all the workouts across the entire mesocycle, which of course is just not practical unless you have like some spreadsheet algorithm. And then you repeat that mesocycle down the road, maybe a couple months later, or maybe you repeat it three times in a row. So let's say you do mesocycle one and then you take a deload, and then you do mesocycle two, and it's the exact same mesocycle. 
you would want to compare the total tonnage from week from mesocycle one to mesocycle two, and maybe from two to three, and maybe across the macro cycle, you would count up the total tonnage and across the entire macro cycle. Again, it's almost abstract because you wouldn't really do this, but you could, and this is where it would be beneficial. And if you take that macro cycle and you repeat this macro cycle, maybe in three years from now, and you can compare how much total tonnage you've actually progressed, um, that's where I see that potentially beneficial. Now, what is a more practical way to do this? Again, I think comparing week to week within the same workout uh, can be really helpful. You're not going to change your program so that this number goes up. That's not the goal, but it might be um, something to look at along the way, as long as you're not programming with the main intent to make this number go up. Um, as you're going through your program week to week, hey, am I doing more week to week for this certain workout? And then maybe at the end, you add up all your peak week tonnage. And then if you repeat this mesocycle again in the future, which is something we're going to do in the group, we're going to repeat mesocycles. Um, you can add up the total tonnage from the next time you do it from that peak week and just say, hey, have you know, can, you can use that as a barometer of like how, how much you've progressed. So cool. Next question, uh, two, two unilateral exercises in lower workout, too much question mark. What if one is hinge and one is a squat pattern? Are one glute and one quad? So n- there's no physiological answer to this question. There, there's not like two unilateral work, two unilateral exercises like breaks some physiological rule. Totally does not. Sometimes having two unilateral workouts like breaks your soul and like just like sucks from a time perspective. You know, a lot of people are like, unilateral work doesn't take more time. That's mostly bullshit in my opinion. Like, yes, you can rest equally between legs, but I'm way more fatigued. Uh, not way more fatigued. Let's not let's not get out of hand. But I'm a little bit more fatigued when I do three sets of Bulgarian split squats than three sets of bilateral back squats. Because as much as a Bulgarian split squat is a unilateral movement, technically, that back leg still does work. So there is, it's technically not, you know, like wholly uni, unilateral. Um, and second, your cardiovascular system is working twice per, like it's working six times over three sets. And so, you know, you have to get up for like emotionally six times. Your cardiovascular system has to work six times. You know, you just have to get into the mode of picking up these heavy ass dumbbells and going through a set six times instead of three times. And so having that twice in your program where you're maybe you're doing Bulgarians and then you're doing a B stance RDL, which could be two, you know, one's a hinge, one's a squat pattern. Um, it could be like soul crushing because it just like takes a little bit longer and, and emotionally, I think that they're a little bit more taxing. Um, but there's no physiological downside to doing this. Like you, you could do this. No, you wouldn't be breaking some rule. Um, you just might not love it. Um, and then you said, what if one is a hinge, one is a squat pattern? I, again, I think there's no physiological consideration here, really. There might be in the greater look at, you know, if we take a greater look at the programming, maybe. Um, but there's no big physiological consideration here. It's only if if you don't mind doing that. I'll tell you guys right now that that is, um, my coach is programming me partially for strength and hypertrophy, but partially for my ankle and just working on challenging the muscles of the ankle to get stronger so I can get back to, you know, sports and stuff. Um and we have one day where we do this like, um, it's like a pistol squat. It's like a lateral step down and it's a single leg exercise. And then after that we have uh, step ups. And on that day, like I just fucking hate it. And so like, I know that that, like I understand where you're coming from with like two unilateral movements not being fun, but it doesn't break some physiological rule. And and, and for now I do it. Um, actually we have three unilateral movements that day, but the other one is just the tibialis raise. And so it's really kind of irrelevant. Um, cool. Next question. How much more anabolic is being in a surplus compared to maintenance or a deficit? 
I can't really give you like a percentage. It's like, oh, you're going to grow 100% more in a surplus. I bet that there's some research out there of like, hey, we put group A in a surplus and group B was at maintenance and we measured muscle growth differences. I'm guessing that that's out there. Uh, I think it would also depend on the training age of the individual. Are are we talking about untrained individuals? Um, You know, if you're an untrained individual, the difference might not be as great. Uh, Let me think if I really believe that. So if you're brand new to training, you will grow really well in a deficit. You'll grow even better at maintenance. So no matter what, state of training age you are, you will grow worse in a deficit, better at maintenance, best in a surplus. Let's just start with that. That goes for all training ages. Like it doesn't matter if you're advanced, first day in the gym, whatever. You grow your worst in a deficit, best at at surplus and in the middle at maintenance. Um, The net outcome of that will be different depending on your training age. Like if you're brand new to training, all three of those will lead to growth. If you're 10 years into training, then a deficit won't lead to growth. A maintenance might lead to such slow growth that you could practically say you're not growing because it would take years for you to ever see any change. And so you almost could get to a state, depending on training age, where practically speaking, the difference is 100%. Like the difference is the difference between gaining at all and not gaining anything. And so it depends on training age, I'd say. Um, I think personally, I'm at a stage in my life where the difference is everything, where I will not see meaningful growth anymore unless I'm in a surplus. And so for me, the difference is every, everything. Um, but when it's day one in the gym, man, you, you could see grow, really amazing growth in a deficit. And so the difference still might be great where like you grow, I'm making this up, but let's say you grew two pounds of muscle in a year in a deficit, but you gained 10 pounds of muscle in a year in a surplus. Like that's still a, you know, a 500% increase in a surplus. And that's still a big deal. But you might say, okay, but in the deficit, I gained two pounds of muscle. I also lost 30 pounds, and that's really practical for me too. And at maintenance, maybe I would have gained five or six pounds. Um, and so the difference is always you know, more with more food and less with less food. That's always true. But the net outcome of that, I definitely think, has a lot to do with training age for sure. Next question, how to step away from tracking meticulously in maintenance after a cut? Um, the how to do it is... There's a lot of ways to do it. Uh, I think that if you were my client, we were kind of working on this together. We would talk. You know, I'd want to. I'd want to know more about your relationship with food. I'd want to know know more about your day to day life. Um, my general advice, because this is a one way conversation here, without more context, is to is to do it slowly. Is to start by doing it slowly. I have a couple clients now that are working on having a couple days of the week where they just don't open the app. Right? Do not open your app. That's your goal. You can track on the other days. You can, you know, you can weigh food all the time. Like, um, even on the days you're not tracking, that doesn't mean you can't weigh food, right? I mean, this doesn't mean you can't like use the scale, the food scale to like help you decide portions. Um, so I would recommend having, starting with just one day where you practice literally the act of not opening the app. Um, that by itself, like not opening the app at all is a, is a good place to start. Just do it on one day. And what you will probably find, by the way, is that you don't eat any differently on that day. And having starting to like build that almost like neural pathway in your brain of like, hey, just because I'm not tracking doesn't mean I have to drastically change the way I eat. It also doesn't mean I have to stop using this, the food scale to like help me decide portion sizes. Like it's okay to use a food si- food scale, cup measurements. It's okay to look at the package and see what a serving size is. That's all fine to continue to do. And so what I would recommend is to start with having a day where you don't open the app and do that for a couple of weeks until it starts to click where you're like, yeah, on that day, it's the same shit anyway, 
right? It's this mostly the same shit anyway. Now, if it's not the case, if you're like, hey, on the days I don't open the app, like I really lose it emotionally. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing so great. By the way, that wouldn't even be, in my opinion, an immediate reason to abort mission. That that might be a reason to like keep doubling down on that and challenging yourself and being curious about it and introspective and, and looking into that for sure. Um, but I would recommend starting slow, having a day where you don't open the app, but allowing yourself to do everything else normal. Like chances are, if you've been tracking for a while, that you could probably, if you still weigh and, and, and measure stuff normally, get yourself to exactly the same amount of calories or roughly the same amount of calories. Now you might have a moment where that isn't the case, where you're at dinner, out to dinner, at a friend's house, or you cooked a meal that you normally would have liked to track, and you're gonna be you're gonna be challenged to build a plate that's roughly the amount of calories that you would normally be having potentially, um, and that's good. That that's the whole point. The point is to challenge yourself because once you if you're still doing everything else, if you're still like weighing yourself and stuff, you'll see that with six days of tracking, one day of not opening the app, that potentially your weight is just maintaining. And so you're doing it. You're doing maintenance with with this one day of not tracking. And then maybe you can go to two days and maybe three days. And maybe you go to two days of tracking, five days of not tracking. And slowly you can increase that ratio until you practice not tracking at all and sort of seeing what happens. I mean, some part of this is taking a little bit of a leap of faith and seeing what happens. You can always go back to tracking if that's something that you feel is, is you know, helping you continue on this journey in the direction you want to go, which in this case is maintenance. But yeah, it's always going to be a little bit of a leap of faith so you can take it slow. But certainly I, I would believe that start with, start with, just having a day where you don't open the app and starting to like kind of build that that understanding within you that that doesn't mean that you need to eat differently just because you're not opening the app. You can still do all of your habits and routines, all of your normal principles by which you build meals, you know, get a protein on each plate, get a protein in a plant. Uh, you can keep your normal, regular like eating pattern throughout the day. Oh, I have three meals, I have one snack, I eat at eight and 12 and six or whatever it is. Um, you can keep your regular, like I want you to do those things now without opening the app to make you realize that those are the things that actually matter. Like what helps you maintain maintain weight or accomplish any goal you know, is your habits. The tracking helps you be a little bit more like dialed in. It brings those like bumpers in a little bit, but it's your habits that are really gonna decide whether or not you can maintain or lose weight or gain weight or whatever the goal is. And so once you take away the tracking, you'll become more in touch with other things like how you're building meals and, uh, you know, just generally portion control and potentially satiety signaling and stuff like that. And so do it slowly, start with a day of not tracking, see how it goes. Next question is stages of learning to pull up, to do a pull up. It's my new goal and I'm clueless where to start. Um, Everybody, I will say that there's like, I I don't want to be negative about what I'm about to say. Doing pull-ups is cool. It's awesome. Like if you want to do a pull-up, that's a great goal. Good for you. Go do it. Um, I, I don't want that to be that something we all put up on this pedestal of like, I have to be able to do a pull-up or I don't have fun with this fitness thing. Yeah, I get, uh, sorry, I, I'm getting like, I'm recoiling a little bit. It, it, I can see myself in the camera here, like reco- like visually recoiling from the question. Just because I've seen the like pull-up goal become negative where people are like so down on themselves because they can't do a pull-up. And so excuse me if I'm just, I recoil a little bit at that because I've seen, I've seen the, the, goal of even specifically pull-ups and push-ups like body weight stuff be like really disheartening sometimes for people who would otherwise be having a really good time with their fitness so anyway 
just make sure, just check in with your goals and make sure that they're aiding in the fun and not detracting from the fun. Uh, that's something I would really want people to think about. Like, are the goals that you have, are they like goals we normally associate goals with like inherently a positive thing, but like make sure that it actually is a positive thing. Um, as far as getting your first pull up, you need to do three things here, three things. Um, you can get on like some crazy specific, I wanna do a first pull up program, That that's cool. But more importantly, especially cause you said, you, you said you're just starting out on this goal, you gotta do three things. Number one is recognize that this is a strength to weight ratio exercise. And so if your main goal in life was to do a pull-up, then weighing less is helpful. Now, I'm not saying it should be your main goal in life to do a pull-up. I'm not saying that you should fucking starve yourself or do anything unhealthy or, or you know, detract from potentially your happiest weight and body size just to be able to do a pull-up. But you have to recognize that that is the case. You can't just gain strength, gain strength, gain strength, and it's just gonna be difficult to do pull-ups if you don't at least recognize that there are two sides to this equation. You need to be strong, but you also need to be strong per pound that you weigh. Um, number two is you just need to get a really freaking strong back. A lot of people are like, oh, how do I do my first pull-up? I have to do all these pull-ups. I gotta grease the groove, and I gotta do all this like pull-up practice, and we'll get to that in a second. But first and foremost, you need to get a really fucking strong back, period. And so if you look at your program and you're like, there are no pull-ups here. I must not be working on my pull-ups. Like that's not true. If you're doing a lot of rows and vertical pulling and training the muscles in the back, your biceps, forearms, you are working on pull-ups. And, and I say that because that'll happen in my group sometimes. People are like, I really want to work on pull-ups. I'm like, yo, you guys are doing a ton of back work. And if you want to work on pull-ups, then get your back, you know, 50% stronger on all of your movements than it is right now. And I promise you that will translate to your pull-ups. Um, it's like, oh, I really want to get better at uh, whatever. Maybe it's like squatting. It's like, okay, yes, squatting is the best thing you can do to get better at squatting, totally. But all of your leg training will carry over at least as long as you're doing some form of squatting as well. Like it's all part of the equation. So number one is recognize this is a strength to weight ratio thing. Number two is get a strong AF back. Again, that is separate from doing pull-ups. That means could do pull-ups, but doing pull-downs and rows and lat pull-downs and upper back rows and rear delt rows and like all this stuff, that's all going towards your pull-ups. Those muscles are all important for you to do a your first pull-up or more pull-ups or whatever. And number three is yes, you need some element of specificity, so you should be practicing the actual movement of doing pull-ups. And so you don't need to obsess over that in my opinion. Like it doesn't need to be only, oh, I'm, I'm doing eccentric pull-ups on Monday and then I'm doing banded pull-ups on Wednesday and then I'm doing uh, dead hangs and and stuff and, and ch uh, overhand, uh, you know, kind of like uh, uh, isometric holds on the on Friday. It doesn't need to be so like that. It can be if you want to be, if this is the only goal that you have, um, but you need to be doing some form of pulling of pull-ups, like something specific to the skill of pulling up. Like neurologically, you want to teach your body how to actually do this technique really well. Um, so I yes, if you want to do pull-ups, I recommend having a specific pull-up either practice or exercise within your program, you know, as many mesocycles or as often as possible. And so if you're in my group, we aren't a push-up specific or a pull-up specific program, but every time there is, I believe that there's an option for you to swap something for pull-ups, I say to you that, hey, if this is, you know, if you're somebody who really wants to work on pull-ups, this is what I would do in this slot. And so the three things that you need to do is one, recognize it's a strength to weight ratio exercise. Number two is get a strong AF back, like, everywhere on your back, rows on every angle, different arm paths, get a really strong back overall. And number three is some form of practicing the movement. 
And so that could be banded chin-ups, that could be eccentric-only chin-ups, that could be dead hangs at the bottom, that could be isometric holds at the top, um, it could be could be like a super loaded eccentrics where you're loading you know even more weight on a belt and controlling the weight down all of those things can be really great i'm not a big grease the groove guy where it's like out of practices every single day um greasing the groove to me has more benefit benefit for things that are more neurologically complex like um playing a sport hitting a golf ball shooting a basketball um you could grease the groove i just don't think that it's like this massively special thing i i would rather you not grease the groove and actually like recover from your workouts incredibly well and train your back really effing hard, get really effing strong there. Um, and yeah, and do some form of specific pulling up in your program. Absolutely, I think that is important. I don't want to discount that. Question, why does a mesocycle progress in RIR? Isn't that just making you feel like you're progressing as you could have hit those weight and reps before, but you're choosing not to? Um for the first week, can I go to three RIR and then just go to zero or one RIR next week's until I stall? Wouldn't that make better gains long term, more effective reps accumulated? Sorry for the long response. Love how love your podcast and how honest you are. Thank you. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, let me see if I can simplify it because I know what you're saying. You're saying, well, why do three RIR um, at the beginning of the mesocycle if a zero RIR set? is more stimulative, right? Which is true. Three RIR is, you get less hypertrophy at three RIR than you do at zero RIR. So what you said is, so I'm gonna use your words here. You said, um, uh, for the first week, can I go to three RIR and then just hit zero to one RIR next week's until I stall? And so what would happen is, if you started your mesocycle with zero to one RIR, let me be very clear here. There's a way to organize it where you could do this. And the simple answer is you'd have to do less sets. So you could do zero RIR right from the get-go, but you wouldn't be able to do as many sets, right? Because if you do a program, let's say my program, where we don't do zero RIR the entire mesocycle, we start roughly at two RIR, let's say. Um, if you do my program, that the intent is to do two RIR from the get-go, roughly three, two, one on average, about two, Um but you do zero RIR. That means I have accounted for more sets because we're starting a little further from failure than zero. You wouldn't be able to do that many weeks of this, right? So let's say we're doing, I don't know, let's say 12 working sets per day. You wouldn't be able to do 12 sets per workout at zero to one RIR for more than a couple of weeks before I believe you would, depending on the exercise selection and your recovery habits, you might just start to see, um, at at worst, you would you would overtrain, right? Start to see some joint fatigue. Start to see actual performance regression. Um, I, I the reason that I'm I'm not so down on this. I don't think that it's the end of the world. I don't think that most people are at a real risk for overtraining if the program is like three or four days a week. And so, even if you took my program, you said, "Fuck it, Jordan, I'm doing zero RAR every single set, the entire mesocycle." Um, I think it's possible that you'd be fine. I think you'd be more likely to come up against joint pain, uh, more likely to come up, up across some overreaching symptoms, maybe poor sleep, um, you know, fatigue, potentially like illness and stuff like that from a decreased immune system, potentially. Um, but it, it's possible that you could survive that. Um, you know, I, I think that this is one of the issues from the effective reps model, though. And so you're saying, hey, I'd get more effective reps if I do this, I, you know, because why I do three RR where I'm only getting roughly two. Um, effective reps when I could do zero RR and I get more like five effective reps. 
Um, because if you looked across the entire time in which you could train without overtraining, you could train, you'd actually get more net effective reps starting at three RIR, I believe, um, and doing a little bit more sets and progressing to zero RIR. If you actually calculated the effective reps over that time scale, because you'd actually be able to train for longer because you were training with a little bit less intensity from the get-go, I actually think that would net out to more effective reps. I think that's really the point. If you started training at zero to one RIR and you tried to do even remotely higher volumes, you would crash and burn or you wouldn't be able to do it for as long. So you might get more effective reps per week per workout, but not per mesocycle. Um, and maybe you'd come up across more joint pain. Now, I am of the opinion of training generally harder, though. I'm not of the opinion that starting at four or five RIR, it's not, I, I would rather you spend more of your meso at, in the zero to two RIR than I think most people in the industry, I'm not trying to like differ, I'm not trying to like, whatever, I don't want to make it seem like, oh, I disagree with the big guys, but I actually prefer my my clients and my group members to train a little bit harder maybe with a little bit less volume and then maybe that's where I'm coming from here where I actually believe that this is not such a bad strategy if you don't train with so much volume. So it depends with how much, uh, it depends how much volume you're training with. If you are, there is like dog crap training or DC training, if you guys look into that, where it's really low volume, but really high intensity. And so this is actually a strategy you would like employ that you would use, you would train with zero to one RIR from the get-go, but you would acknowledge that there's an inverse relationship between how hard you train and how much you can train, how much volume you can do. So you'd be training with more intensity. You'd have to scale back the amount of sets and that might net out to really good gains. You know, if we want to talk about like what would give us the optimal gains, it's a slightly different story. And I'd bet that training with with zero to one RIR on every set all the time, that that probably would lose the argument for what is physiologically optimal, just because you wouldn't be able to net enough, you, you would net less stimulus, I believe, because you'd be training so fucking hard that you'd run into more issues of overreaching, overtraining than if you took one tiny step back and that sort of like stimulus to fatigue ratio in that like one to three RIR is probably the best. It's probably the way for you to accumulate the most Total tension, total quality tension, quote, volume. Um, and so that, that conversation might be a little bit dense, but I actually don't disagree that training a little bit harder is a fine strategy from the get-go. Uh, we actually definitely do that in the group. We we train on average at, uh, with a two RAR. Sometimes we start at zero to one right from the get-go on some movements. Sometimes we start beyond failure right from the get-go, but the harder we train, the more we acknowledge that the less sets we'll be able to do. Next question. I think I've been overdoing cardio and steps, but I'm nervous to slow down or stop. Help me. My, my first thoughts, and I don't want to breeze over this question. I don't even know how long I've been going now because I had that little technical difficulty here. got a little second wind. Um, is I'm just, I was speaking directly to the camera and to you when I say this, is acknowledge that you have to do this, right? That you must do this. So maybe you're nervous. You're nervous about how it's going to go. You don't want to gain weight. You don't want to decrease your activity and your calories burn and gain weight, but you must do this. And so start to get a little bit of like a mentality of acceptance that you have to do this, that you can't do this amount of cardio forever. Like put that in your head of like, this is something I must do. It might be hard. There might be roadblocks. You might gain weight, right? That might happen. You might gain a little bit of weight doing this. You might fuck something up. I don't know, but you must do this. So start to wrap your head around the fact that you must embark on this journey of lowering steps down to a sustainable level. Uh, My advice to you is actually one is two things. One is to, Adopt a, 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 a mentality of acceptance that you must do this. Um, number two is acknowledge that there's actually just like additions of like I, I'm going to be speaking in March about 
um, like volume for hypertrophy. And one of the key things that we're going to talk about is that there's a diminishing return with more volume. There's a diminishing return with more steps. You might be doing 20,000 steps a day right now, let's say. If you go down to 15,000 steps, you will not be burning 25% less calories, right? Because there's a diminishing return, I would bet somewhere around that, like 12,000 steps per day, 10 to 12. Actually, there's a diminishing return the whole time, but where we start to see like a big diminishing return, a big compensatory effect tends to be when people go from moderately active to very active. So if you're sedentary and you go from sedentary to moderately active, there's a big calorie burn boost. It's a, it's an amazing thing. Um, but when we see moderately active people become very active, they don't gain as many net calories burned. There's a bit of a compensatory effect. And so I would hang my hat on the fact that like if you went from 20,000 steps to 10,000 steps, you're much more sustainable. You wouldn't be burning 50% less calories, right? You It would not be a net 50% decrease in calories burned, even though it's a decrease in steps by 50%. Um, I don't know the exact amount that, right? The exact percentage is too many moving parts here, but I would hang my hat a little bit on like, a lot of people are like, hey, Jordan, I got injured or, you know, it's cold out and I and I used to do 12,000 steps. Now I'm doing 8,000. How much should I decrease my calories? And sometimes I'm like, not at all. You know, you might go down 4,000 cal- uh, steps. That might be a 33% decrease in steps. And you might find out that you don't need to change your calories at all because your body's an amazing, amazing machine. And there's some compensatory effect where maybe your subconscious movement kind of compensates for that decrease in, in intentional activity. And it ends up netting out to be totally fine. And so I might start by saying, hey, don't do it all at once. Don't slash your steps in half, but maybe cut it by 33% and don't change anything at all because you might be surprised that nothing is going to happen. Um, God, I've had that experience with clients so many times where they're nervous about decreasing steps and nothing changes, right? That the body's just an amazing machine, that there is some compensatory mechanisms in there, especially for people who are going from really freaking active to like more moderately and sustainably active, that it ends up being like, You didn't actually need to change something at all this whole time. Uh, And you were all nervous about gaining a bunch of weight. You got to decrease your calories. When in reality, that that didn't actually have to happen. Um, And so that's definitely something I would consider. You know, I think general advice to like maybe not slash it in half. You know, it's do you want to do it in a slow, meticulous manner where you're dropping it by a little bit? Or do you want to cold turkey it because you're just fucking sick of it? I think that there's merit to both of those strategies. Um, if you wanted to pick more of a middle ground where let's say you were 20K and let's say you wanted to go to 10K where you're like, hey, I'm gonna go to 15K and we're gonna see how that goes. Like, I think that would be a fine strategy to kind of step down, do a meaningful chunk right out of the way so you can at least feel like you're actually starting to chip away at this goal here. Uh, but I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't automatically assume that, I wouldn't automatically assume that this is gonna end in some sort of like, you can't get away from the fact that you're gonna gain weight doing this. I'm not sure that that is going to happen. Um, You could also decrease calories a little bit. Again, I just spent a whole like fucking 10 minutes telling you that you probably don't have to, which I agree with, but you could be like, yeah, I'm gonna decrease calories a tiny bit. Most people don't wanna do this. That's the whole point you're asking the question because you know that you could just eat less. You don't want to. Um, It's part of the reason you're doing so much cardio in the first place is so that you could eat more probably, uh, or you think you can eat more. Um, And so, yeah, I think I would recommend considering a a step-by-step manner of like a step down by a certain percentage, but I wouldn't change anything right off the bat. I would give yourself a little bit of time, two to four weeks to see how does my hunger and body kind of body shape and size regulate to this new activity level. Because depending on what you were doing and depending on how much you'd like to do that you find sustainable, you might not need to change anything at all. So I would absolutely 
if you know if we were a one-on-one client i'd want to know more though question uh what would love your thoughts and opinions on the new aap childhood obesity guidelines so i have seen some snippets of these guidelines i've seen people up in arms over these guidelines um I have not read the full text of these guidelines. And, you know, I saw this question in here just a couple minutes before I was starting to hit record and I pulled up the guidelines. So it's actually something I'm going to read today in full because I don't think I want to give too many, you know, I saw some people like, oh my God, they're considering bariatric surgery for children. This is so fucked up. Uh, I don't think that 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 should be categorically off the table for children. Um I don't think that there's something inherently like that that can absolutely not happen, that we can't ever do that with children. I think I saw a lot of that on social media. People like, they're recommending that all kids get bypass surgery or bariatric surgery or they get a gastric a sleeve. That I don't, I don't think that that's what this is. I will read the whole guidelines though. Um, I would be very disappointed if there were no discussions of lifestyle variables. I'd be very surprised if that's the case. Um, I... I don't think I could categorically rule out bariatric surgery for 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 children for pediatrics. I don't think I, I don't think I would know enough about this. Like I think people who are like up in arms as as if that's like the the first line of defense. Yeah, I, I would be up in arms if that's the first line of defense too. Um, I don't think that's the case though. But I don't want to comment too much. I'm going to read the full text. Maybe in my next Q and A, you can ask this question again, and I can give some further thoughts. Um, I think it's an incredibly important topic though. So I'm, I'm super glad you asked and. Uh, you know, I'm not, I was going to say normally I'd, I'd, I'd try and give some thoughts, but this isn't something I want to take a stab at without having a good handle on what those guidelines actually are. So ask again in the next check-in uh, or the next q and I'd love to I'd love to give my further opinion. I have the full text. You know, I read an article on it before, um, but even that I don't think does it justice. Every article has an agenda, and so I want to read the full text myself, get my own agenda, you know? How many more questions? We got quite a bit here. Let's see. Um... Do we really need to train two times a week if we can hit the same frequency or the same total volume, as I think you mean, in one session, assuming it's less than 10 sets? So let's say you're training with 10 sets per muscle group per week on average. Um, could you do that in a bro split in a one times per week frequency and get the same results? I absolutely think yes. I think 100% yes. You could train with a full-on back day and a full-on pec day and a leg day um, you know, and do it all in one session and provided that your total volumes aren't so high that the per session volume, it's like, I like giving the studying example. Like if you need to study two hours per week, can you do that in one session? Absolutely, right? If that's the amount of studying you need to do to accomplish the goal, you can do that in one session, right? Like there's a general idea that, you know, frequency would be beneficial. Well, frequency would be beneficial if the amount of work you have to do, you can't do in one shot or you can't do optimally in one shot, or there's a big benefit to doing it more than one shot. And if we take that studying example, I think you can do two hours of really, really good studying. I think the quality drop off is not there in two hours. But if you need to study 10 hours per week to accomplish you know, the amount of studying that you would need to study, I think we can all agree that at some point in a single session, quality would drop off meaningfully, meaningfully that splitting this up into multiple sessions would give you the highest quality return. And that's the same thing with volume. If you need, if you're like, if you are doing, and I, I say if you are doing slash if you need to do, you know, how you would know that you would need to do this is a separate question. But let's say you're like, oh, I got to do, you know, 20 sets for my back. I think that at 20 sets per workout, I think you would start to see a diminished return in quality. 
So if your back needed 20 sets to grow, I wouldn't do all 20 in one session because I think that that's that 10 hour per week studying circumstance where you would start to see a quality drop off beyond a certain point. And that's why you said, um, you know, if assuming it's less than 10 sets, I think if you're not, if you're studying for two hours a week, you can do it all in one session. If you're studying for 10 hours a week, I would break it up. And so if you're somebody who's like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing 20 sets a week for my back. Again, I, I think having the discussion of whether or not you need that is a, a very important topic that I'm very passionate about. But let's assume that that's just like what you're doing. Yes, I think that there is such thing as a per session volume limit where after that performance drops off, notably that splitting it up would be more beneficial. Totally. I, if I was like trying to train my chest with 20 sets per week, wouldn't do it all in one session. If I'm doing, you know, nine sets per chest for chest for my you know, for the week, I would do them all in one session. I wouldn't bat an eyelash. I wouldn't expect worse results at all, actually. Next question: Does your program do strictly hypertrophy training? Do I ever throw in a strength cycle? Here's here's the problem with this. One, I don't want to jump down your throat here. It's a great question. Uh, the answer is no. As of right now, we only do hypertrophy cycles. We do not do strength training. We do not do metabolic training. We don't do circuit training. We don't do endurance training. We just do hypertrophy training. I am not in a place where I believe that deviations from hypertrophy will potentiate greater net hypertrophy. I don't believe that doing a strength cycle has meaningful hypertrophy benefits over the long term over just doing hypertrophy. So I don't believe that if if your main goal is hypertrophy, I don't think that there's a physiological reason to ever not do hypertrophy. Um, That's my current stance for sure, I'd say. Um, that is for sure what I believe is what I'm saying, um, is that if your goal is hypertrophy and you have the opportunity to do a strength cycle or a hypertrophy cycle over the net years and years that you're training, I don't think that that strength cycle is having a net greater impact on hypertrophy gains than if you had just done hypertrophy during that time. So I can't really make a physiological argument as to why we would ever do a strength cycle. So physiologically speaking, the group is, the main goal is hypertrophy. So in order to do something that's not hypertrophy, strength training, you you would have to argue that that will produce greater net hypertrophy over X period of time than if you had just done hypertrophy. I don't believe that to be the case. Now, the other reason that you would do a strength cycle is for fun, is to change it up, is to is to is if you enjoy that. And I say for fun, and that's up for debate. So I don't believe it would be fun. Now, that's, I don't want to, it's not just about me, but I'm saying I'm an example of someone that wouldn't enjoy that. Um, and so in a group setting, that can be quite polarizing where like maybe 50% of people would enjoy the strength training, maybe, or let's say 33% of people would really enjoy it, 33% of people would be like, yeah, whatever, it's fine, and 33% of people would really, really hate it. And 33% of people really, really hating it is just a tough thing to do in a group. Um, It's the same with like metabolic training, which is like endurance, which is like a circuit training. It's like, I don't see a physiological advantage and if I think one third of my group is going to really hate it, then it's a really tough sell. Now, there's 33% of people that would really like the strength training cycle. And so I'm not giving those people the thing that they might really like, but they might be just fine not doing the strength. They might like the strength cycle, but they might be fine not doing it. And so my goal is to solve for net happiness and net enjoyment, right? And the word, I'm using the word net because I'm accepting that to solve for net means that there, you know, you can't make every, not everyone's going to love exactly what we're doing 100% all the time. And so my goal is to solve for net overall happiness for the most people. And I just can't think of a physiological reason to do strength training if the main goal is hypertrophy. 
And from a overall like large population standpoint, there's just too many people who wouldn't like that. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's an assumption I'm making. Maybe everybody would love it. Um, I really would bet that that's not the case. Um, my assumption is that if people join the group for hypertrophy, they want to do hypertrophy training, um, at least for the vast majority of the time. Um, and if they join for hypertrophy and then I'm like, yeah, that's cool, but we're doing strength training, they would say, okay, well, tell me how this benefits my hypertrophy training, and I don't really have a good reason for that. I understand the theoretical reasons. I don't think that they actually are real, though. I don't, like, I can understand, like, what people might say about why a strength training would potentiate better hypertrophy. I don't believe that to be the case, though. So, um, I'm not totally against it. If you find it fun, it's tough to do in a group setting without my belief that there's a physiological advantage and with the understanding that it'd be a large percentage of people that wouldn't enjoy it. Uh, so that's my my stance on that. It might change in the future, who knows. Next question, thoughts on other coaches suggesting bulking is not ideal for women. So you and I had a chat about this. The person who is talking about this, somebody I respect a ton that I really love, um, uh, again, we could talk about it. Martin, Martin McDonald has a stance in a podcast that he was talking about where he's like basically saying that most women shouldn't bulk um, and his stance, and I don't want to put words in his mouth because it's been a while since I've heard the full breadth of his argument here, um, is basically that women will have a harder time losing weight. And so actively getting fatter will be, uh, not as fun for women because of how they distribute fat and the fact that it will be generally a little bit more difficult for women. Um, now the thing is, while Martin is, is making a lot of these arguments, you know, I know that, I know why you're asking. We had this chat and I've listened to the podcast and while he's making these arguments, I'm I'm disagreeing with him along the way. I'm like, yeah, I'm not really sure that that's, I'm not really sure I agree with that. And that happened multiple times in the podcast. And then he went on to explain what he meant by bulking. And, you know, a lot of the things that I was disagreeing with along the way, I was like, you know what though? Like I disagree. I think women can bulk slowly. They don't need to gain a ton of fat. They can go into a very small surplus because that's what you should do when you're bulking. That you should go into a very small surplus and you should gain weight very slowly. And you shouldn't get to a point where you're at a body fat level that it negatively impacts your health. And so that was my idea of bulking. So as he was talking about, hey, you shouldn't do this, maybe you shouldn't do that. Like I was, I was like, no, I, I think it would be fine because I think this is what I mean by bulking. Then he went on to say, you know what, I, I, you know, I don't think women should be gaining a ton of body fat. I don't think that they should be pushing their body fat super high and gaining a lot of being in like some big bulk. And then I caught myself agreeing with him because. If that's your definition of bulking, where you know you're in a you're doing a dirty bulk, you're gaining weight super fast, you're gaining a ton of body fat over the course of the bulk, and then it might be harder to lose. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And so I think there was a little bit of a difference in definition of bulking. I would not recommend doing that sort of a bulk. I would recommend bulking incredibly slowly, if at all. Um, you know, a five to ten percent calorie surplus where you're gaining roughly one percent of your body weight per month or less. Um, and I think that doing it that way, I think it totally is fine for everybody. Like, I don't think that there's there's a female-specific consideration, in my opinion. There's only a strategic consideration of not bulking super-duper fast, gaining a lot of body fat very quickly. Um, now, I want to talk about a different question. The question is, do, does anybody need to bulk ever at all? And I'm going to say a sentence here. I believe that everybody, every single person, bar, you know, hi, you know hypertrophy non-responders, which are like, literally probably close to nobody, but there's probably more than 0% of people that have an issue with gaining muscle. But let's say the 99.9999% of people, 
can get fit. And, and I, these are all subjective words. Fit, what does that mean? Sub, uh, healthy, what does that mean? Look muscular, what does that mean? But I'm gonna just take a leap and take a generalized approach to those definitions. I believe that everybody, everybody can get fit, strong, healthy, look fit, look muscular, look like they lift, have muscle definition, have muscles without ever spending one day in a surplus. And what I mean by that is that I believe everybody can look all of those things, fit, strong, healthy, muscular, by just lifting at maintenance or deficit if your goal is to lose fat at some point. If people want more than that, if you want, if you, like, if you, the amount of muscle you can gain, right, until a point, until you reach a point where you gain muscle at maintenance so freaking slowly that gaining muscle at maintenance is no longer practical. That person, if you've gained so much muscle that gaining muscle at maintenance is no longer practical and you've done that all at maintenance calories, right? You, you've never spent any time in a surplus. I believe that you will be fit and muscular and strong and have muscles. Uh, I wanna see if I can rephrase this better. Um, most people who who have been lifting at maintenance, they were newbies, they didn't do a surplus, they just started lifting, that's it. If you do that for five years, you're gonna be pretty darn muscular and fit and strong. If you want more than that, yeah, maybe a surplus is what you have to do. But most people don't need to be bodybuilders. Most people don't need to be, you know, 90% of their genetic potential. They need to hit an FFMI of, you know, north of 25 or whatever. Like most people to get fit and strong and healthy, you don't need to ever spend one day in a surplus ever. The amount of muscle that you can build as a newbie at maintenance or a deficit, depending on if during that time you also want to lose some fat, is a lot, a lot of muscle. Like the the vast majority of your genetic potential, I believe you can build without going into a surplus. I say vast majority, a very high percentage, a percentage that I believe for most people you could accrue without ever spending any time in a surplus. Um, you know, will some people get to a point where they are impatient and they'd like it to go faster and so they want a surplus? Yeah, that's totally fine. But I believe if you lifted for five or 10 years for hypertrophy with good recovery habits, enough protein and maintenance calories, or spending some time in the deficit if you want to lose some fat, that you will arrive at a physique that is fit and strong and healthy and muscular that you would generally, most people, be happy with without ever going into a surplus. That has nothing to do with whether or not you could go into a surplus to speed things up, or if at that point or at any point you want more than that. Totally open. I believe everybody can do that. Go ahead. If you're going to do that, do it slow, 5 to 10% over maintenance calories. That's roughly like one to 300 calories for most people. Aim to gain roughly 1% of your body weight per month. Maybe even a little bit less is cool. You know, you can do it for longer if, if it's if it's slower. Um, but yeah, I'm not in full agreement with that with that stance. Um, if if we're talking about a slow deficit, if we're talking about super dirty bulk, gain a ton of body fat really quickly. Yeah, I don't think anybody should do that. By the way, um, if reps are staying the same for multiple weeks on a body weight exercise, but it's to failure, am I still growing muscle? Yes, you are. In the in the short to medium term, you are. In the long term, if you check back with me in two years from now and you can't do any more reps or weight, then I can't be sure that you've built muscle. But in the short to medium term, I believe yes. I believe you can at least assume yes. But if this happens forever, like let's extrapolate this. If, you, if you're like, hey, Jordan, five years ago, uh, I'm doing the same weight and reps as I did five years ago and I've been doing it the same week every week for the last five years, I can't be sure that you've grown for sure. But if you're like, hey, Jordan, for the last three weeks, I've been training super hard, but I've just really been struggling to add reps and load. 
I would say, okay, that's cool. I would not be sure that you haven't grown. I would bet that you have grown or you have sent a hypertrophic stimulus. You have gotten a, a good stimulative benefit from that. I would start to look at the overall programming a little bit. I'd want to look at form videos. I'd want to talk about calories. I'd want to talk about sleep. I would want to talk about things that might kind of set off a, a, a signal in my brain of like, let's check on these things to make sure that you aren't going to keep doing this for the next five years and never progress. But I would say that in the short to medium term, it's the hard training that grows muscle. Over five years, yeah, you should absolutely be able to do more reps and load if you want to be sure that you've been growing. So I wouldn't worry about this in in a weeks. In in weeks, um, I would worry about it from like mesocycle to mesocycle to mesocycle to mesocycle over a six six month to three year period. Definitely, I would I would think about this. Um, I also think that when people are like quote struggling to progress. I also think that they're not taking into account um, a lot of other variables, like smaller opportunities to progress. They're like, I can't progress because every time I put on 25 pounds, it's too heavy. I'm like, yeah, well, what about two and a half pounds? What about one more rep on one set, right? What about slight improvements in technique that eventually can lead you to making some of those load and rep progressions? So a lot of times I think people are not necessarily as in tune with the fact that progressions should be super duper mega small or or more appropriately like will be very likely super duper mega, mega small. Um, cool. Next question. What's your stand on the quote, metabolism doesn't change with age, we just move less. Um, I think that it is factually true. That metabolism, your like base metabolic rate doesn't decrease over between age twenty to sixty. Um, I do believe that we we move less, um, and that's why it's so important to like have some form of movement quantification to count your steps or minutes done doing cardio or number of walks per week or something. I struggle with this one because I know the reason you're asking. The reason you're asking is that anecdotally it gets harder to lose weight when you get older, even for clients who are tracking their movement and who are moving quite a bit. Um, and so the question is, well, if I'm moving a lot and it's harder now, I must have some other independent variable that is decreasing. And, and that would assume to be my BMR, let's say, my my ba- base metabolic rate, my metabolism. Um, it's hard to argue. It's hard to argue based on current research that that there is something else going on because we have really good research across the population from age 20 to 60 that metabolism stays, base metabolic rate stays pretty static basically static. Um, and so it's hard, it's hard to say. I, I, I'm not sure what I would, what I would say. Okay. So how does this affect my coaching? If a client's struggling in their forties, forties and fifties, and they're like, you know what, this was easier in my twenties and thirties. And they're still doing things really great. They're getting 10,000 steps, their nutrition's on point, And they can't figure out why this is harder. I'm going to be compassionate. I'm not going to jump down their throat and be like, no, that's fucking bullshit. Your metabolism doesn't slow down. You're doing something wrong. You're just not moving enough. Like, I'm going to be compassionate to the fact that there might be variables that are a little bit less tangible that we might not be able to perfectly account for. And so I would be a passionate or compassionate towards these circumstances. But I would want to empower those clients to know that they're, they're not... The, the victim of a big sweeping shift in metabolism that makes this sort of thing not practical and not plausible for them. And so it is a careful balance between playing the victim and enabling your client to feel like a victim while being compassionate that maybe there are some unforeseen variables here. I mean, growing older in different stages of life brings on a ton of variables that are almost unquantifiable, incredibly un- not tangible. 
Um, so I would be compassionate towards those, recognize that, that there might be some things that make this harder that we can't perfectly see in the literature. But at the same time, we have really good literature that says the metabolism is not slowing down between 20 and 60. And so let's at least take take off the idea that there's like big grand sweeping change. Oh, once I hit 40, my metabolism tanked. It's like that certainly did not happen. Um, and so it's, it is a, like everything in this like fitness or the discussion of body fatness and obesity, it's like, we want to dance between the line of personal responsibility and acknowledgement of physiology, um, that there are genetic variables and there's life, there's things physiologically that change over the lifespan, but we also don't want to totally enable our clients to play the victim and, and never take any responsibility for the power that they do have to make changes. So that's my current stance here. It is one of acknowledging that metabolism probably doesn't slow very much, but also being compassionate. There might be other things that we can't see and just taking that into, into my coaching, into the way my rhetoric, the way I would be discussing this with the client. Oh, we got, yeah, I'm just going to get, I'm going to go all the way through it. Fuck it. We're going to do it. Um, I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight more shit. Let's see. I think some of these will be a little quicker. Best moves to grow glutes, but not hamstrings been doing hip thrusts and step ups, et cetera, but hamstrings grow. My knee jerk, I'm, I'm, I promise, I, everything I say is never trying, I'm never trying to be a dick. I'm, if I'm a little bit direct sometimes, it's just because I'm, I'm, I'm gonna let you in on like what my knee jerk reactions are and then we'll talk about it. My knee jerk reactions is like, how do you know your hamstrings are growing? Like, like how do you even know that? Like, I chuckle to that where I'm like, progress is so fucking slow. How do you know your hamstrings are growing? Like, um, that's my first thought is like, are you like measuring your hamstrings? Like you've seen meaningful hamstring growth. I've been lifting for like 10 years. I don't think I've ever like seen meaningful hamstring growth. It's just like a muscle that you don't typically tend to see. Like you don't look at it very often, right? It's not like something it's like, oh, look at my bicep. Like that is like more tangible or like my pecs or my back or like something or my glutes. Like even like hamstrings, like probably the hardest muscle to, uh, to actually sense that you're growing in. It's like the, probably the muscle you see the least. Um, so I'd be like curious, like, are you, are you, are you letting your fears of hamstring growth, like kind of like create a, a, a thought in your mind that they are growing? Like, is that manifesting into the, them, you thinking they grow? Um, hip thrusts and step ups do not meaningfully work the hamstrings. Like that's period, end of story. You are doing movements with a very bent knee. When you bend the knee, you shorten the hamstring. And so step ups and glute bridges and leg presses and squats and lunges and split squats and all of these things, they do not meaningfully grow your hamstrings. They might give you a tiny bit of stimulus sometimes. You know, people go, oh, if your feet are too far away from you in the in the in a step in a in a hip thrust, then it'll work your hamstrings. That's true. The, if your feet are further away from you, your hamstrings will work a little bit, but they still won't work a lot. They still will not work a lot. And I say they won't work a lot, meaning I don't think that they'll grow very much at all. Um Certainly not with these movements. So if you wanted to grow your glutes without growing your hamstrings, you would do what you're already doing, which is why I'm skeptical that they've grown, which is why I'm curious how you know they've grown. Like all lower body pressing movements that have a very bent knee, split squats, squat patterns, leg presses, step ups. Uh, again, glute bridges have a very bent knee, should be a 90 degree knee ba- knee angle. Um, what that does is that disadvantages the hamstrings, which just means you're already doing all the things you can do to not grow your hamstrings. Um, so that's why I'm skeptical that they've grown at all or how you've been assessing that they grow because, you know, don't do RDLs. Don't do seated hamstring curls. Don't do the lying hamstring curls. But the, the two that you mentioned don't grow the hamstring meaningfully at all. So that, that's, all, that's the only reason I'm coming at it from that perspective. So I would look more at your actual hamstring training like RDLs, seated ham curls, lying ham curls. 
In a cut, next question. In a cut, will you see the same results hitting each macro versus hitting calories and total cals method? Yes, you will. You will. Outside of very extreme examples where like, if you just counted calories and protein that you'd go keto. Um, P.S. You'd lose the same amount of fat in keto. You just lose more water weight. And so, yes. The answer is yes. I don't want to go deep into the extreme scenarios where I believe there might be a difference because I don't believe people will go to an extreme macro split if they just count calories and protein. What I'm saying is if you go, if you just count calories and protein, the extreme uh, outcome of that is that you only eat fat and you never ate carbs, right? And you only, you went keto. You intuitively went keto. And, and I'm already like, I already don't want to go down this route because nobody intuitively goes keto. Um, but yeah, I think there'd be a difference between a very high carb, low fat. Yeah, I actually don't even think there'd be a difference. I really don't think there'd be a difference. I don't even know if I could make an example where I think there'd be a difference. Um, maybe there's some super nuance of like, yeah, with more carbs, maybe I train harder and I build more muscle. But even that I think would take a very long time to manifest. And you'd have to be pretty trained for, I think that difference to actually manifest in something that you would see. Um, And even with all of that, I think the sustainability benefits of counting calories and protein, like by 100 fold outweigh these physiological potential differences, which I think, again, are arguably, most arguably none. Next question, wait, did you get an opossum? Where have I been? I did not get an opossum, but one of my lovely group members, you know, at the end of our group Zooms, um, what I like to do is, you know, everybody who's on the Zoom, I tell people, can you please, I say, show me your pet. And it's just a really nice thing where everybody turns on their camera if they they had their camera off and they like hold up their pet or they come show me their pet. And it's just a really nice moment where everyone shows their dog or, you know, their, their, cat or whatever. And it's really great because I love pets. I love animals. It's just super fun. And one of my clients showed us her opossum, her pet opossum. And it was like literally the, I literally just stopped the zoom. I put her on like the massive screen and I said, you need to tell us about this. And so if you haven't listened, it was our last week's, this latest zoom. And, and so you can go back and watch the recordings. They're all saved. Um, just scroll to the end if you want. And, and, uh, Brenna shout out, um, uh, showed us a, her pet opossum and then sent uh, a bunch of texts to the group chat of like baby pictures. And it's literally the, the, it is the most adorable thing. It's like on a, it's like doing like a trapeze climb, like, like it was, like it was climbing on like trees and stuff, but like it goes upside down and it's like basically on like people's like cell phone wires. Cause it's like as big as like your hand is the most adorable thing ever. I did not get an opossum though, but I wouldn't put it past Jenna. Next question. Peptides. Are they a scam? Kindly, I have no fucking clue. I'm so ignorant to things like steroids and SARMs and peptides. I have no clue. To me, they scare the shit out of me. The the, the thing with this sort of stuff is that you can get, I just told you you can get fit, strong, and healthy without a surplus. You can get fit and strong and healthy and muscular and, and live an amazingly strong, robust physical life without steroids and peptides and SARMs and any of these things. So to me, I just never even been interested in it at all. Um, that's probably not true. When I was 20, I was probably like interested in, should I take these to get even more mega jacked? But like, you just don't need them to have amazing results. So cool. Next question, sub for RDL for home bodies that is not hinging. I'm dealing with a sciatica flare up. So I, 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 I chuckle, not chuckle at this question, but like a lot of times people are like, hey, Jordan, what's a sub for this? because this is hurting or something like that. Um, You know, and so if you want a sub for an RDL, the subs I'm gonna give you are things that are like an RDL. They're good mornings, they're B-stance RDLs, they're basically other hinge movements, maybe 45 degree hip extensions. And so when a lot of people ask for subs, 
the best answer is a like for like sub. And if someone's like, hey, I can't do the the leg press, you know, because I can't get into that much knee, uh, whatever. Uh, let's use this example. If I can't do an RDL, what's a like for like, sw- what is a swap? So do you want a like for like swap? Because that's probably gonna give you the same discomfort. And so when someone's like, hey, I'd like a not like for like swap or somebody like, hey, I, uh, what's a what's a swap I can do um, for, you know, for uh, the pull-ups. Um, I don't want to grow this muscle. And it's like, okay, so I, you're, what you're asking is a different exercise for a different muscle. You're not asking for a swap. And so if you're like, hey, what's a sub for RDLs that's not hinging? Yeah, the best answer is, well, okay, if you don't want a very like, if you don't want the absolute most like for like movement pattern, then maybe you want a like for like muscle group and that would be something like a seated hamstring curl or a lying hamstring curl. But maybe that gives you pain or maybe you're someone who's asking because you don't want to grow your hamstrings. So I'm always, I'm always, it's helpful that you gave me context as to why you want the swap. Sometimes you're like, oh, I want to swap for this. I'm like, okay, but the swap for that is going to be something very like that. Um, Do you want something very like that or something not like that that might work similar muscles or you just want to swap to something freaking different? Um, So my advice to you is a good morning would be the like for like swap but it's also a hinge, you probably get the same pain. If you wanna work the hamstrings, a seated hamstring curl or a lying hamstring curl, if you're doing one of those and you have the opportunity to do both, I would do both. If you don't have the opportunity to do both and you're already doing one of them, you're kind of shit out of luck in terms of training the hamstring. You could do a 45 degree hip extension, but we're also doing that already. And so maybe you would just wanna pick a different leg movement for different leg muscles that you would also be interested in doing. Um, and so hopefully that's helpful. I'm sorry you're having pain. Um, and, and I'm glad you added context as to why you want the swap. Cause it does help me. Cause you know, I wouldn't give, you know, if you're like, Hey, what's a swap for the RDL? I might say good morning, but I'm guessing that that would give you discomfort. So in an attempt to still work similar muscle groups, you could do a seated hamstring curl potentially. Next question. We've got three more. Let's do it. Um, for hypertrophy, does three sets of six equal three sets of 10 with the same RAR? Yes, 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 it does. If you do sets between, you know, some people are going to say sets between five and 30, if they are taken equally close to failure, give you equal hypertrophy. I might not go, whoops, hold on. I might not go as far as to use such absolute language. I might not use the whole range of five to 30. And I might not say it gives you exactly the same hypertrophy. I would say maybe in the six to 15 rep range, you're gonna get basically exactly the same hypertrophy if RIR is equated. North of 15, we might start to looking at over the long-term differences. I believe maybe less hypertrophy, maybe, but but I could be wrong, could be equal. Um, but you said six and you said 10. And I don't think there's any difference, totally. Next question, full body five days. How do I know how many sets I need, but, or I know how many sets I need, but don't know how to distribute them? Luckily for you, the distribution of volume across the week is a very low priority for gains. So I would distribute them in an attempt. Here's the first thing I would do. In an attempt to make all of the days equally hard, if that is what matches with your schedule. Sometimes people have like, you know, schedules where it's probably better for them to have some days that are easier and some days that are harder. You know, maybe, you know, you want to save one of your harder days for the weekend and you want to have easier days, you know, on a day that you have to work after work or work out after work or something. But I would start by trying to make the days equally difficult from a systemic perspective. So when you're, I can't give you more advice than this because it's a long conversation we're not going to go into, but the short version is, is split up the exercises in a way where 
the days are all equally difficult. Don't put RDL, back squat, Bulgarian split squat, walking lunge all on one day and leg extension, leg curl, calf raise, adductor machine on another day. Now you could do that, by the way, if, like I said, you had days that needed to be easier. My first go at this though would be to make the days roughly similar from a systemic perspective. You know, don't put bicep curl, tricep curl, lateral raise, calf raise on one day and barbell bench press, barbell row, barbell overhead press, you know, all of these crazy bilateral heavier upper body movements. I would start to pick maybe one or two systemically taxing compounds and then look at some less systemically taxing isolation lifts and start to build the the days like that. Again, if you want them to be roughly systemically, like equally systemically fatiguing, that would be my first stab at that. Next question, how to not gain fat after a long three cut, three, a long cut of three months? You know, there's a what answer to this question and a how question. The what question is to not go into a calorie surplus, is to not eat so much. If you're gaining weight, if you're gaining a bunch of weight, you're eating too much slash not moving enough. And so I don't want to be a dick with that sort of like direct answer here, but like, dude, if you're gaining weight, if you're like, not a little bit of weight, by the way, when you end your cut, I would not suspect that you're going to maintain every single pound that you've lost because not every single pound that you've lost was fat. So a lot of it was muscle glycogen and water that comes with that, stomach content, Um, that comes from eating less calories, eating less overall food. And so I suspect that you'll gain some weight because some of the, the, even if you do this perfectly, you're gonna gain some weight because some of the weight you lost wasn't fat. It was water weight through a number of different channels and you're probably gonna gain that weight back. So I wouldn't suspect to keep all your weight off. But if you're gaining fat, because you use the word fat week after week after week after week and the weight is trending up, like I mean, you know, I'm again, I don't wanna be a dick, but like eat less or move more. Like you're in a surplus, like get out of a surplus. That's the what, the how, how do you go about that? How do you find your new maintenance? How do you know when it's a surplus and it's not just some of this like glycogen restoration and water retention and normal non-fat weight that you'd gain after a cut? That's a longer discussion that we would you would wanna have with a coach. I think if you're gaining fat, if you can declare that, hey, it's been months and I'm gaining weight, then you're in a surplus and that you need to address that. You know, you need to either eat less or move more or accept that maybe, Trying to maintain all, see, here's where it gets complicated. Maybe trying to maintain the weight that you were when you ended the cut wasn't sustainable for you. Maybe that doesn't really match up with your natural genetic hunger and satiety signaling. You know, your body fat set point. Maybe you are not going to be able to live comfortably at that body weight. That's possible. And so there's a big discussion here um, of, of, it starts with, you're in a surplus, dude. Eat less or move more. Like you're in a surplus, get out of a surplus. Then there's the how side of the question of, you know, how do you know, right? How do you know that you've gone into a surplus? It's not just non-fat weight regain. Um, You know, how do you go about sustaining eating less or moving more, right? How do you arrange your life, lifestyle variables and your behaviors to maintain lower calorie range or or greater movement, uh, you know, on average? Those are important questions too, Uh, but they're questions you should have with a coach that you should you know, look at your life and your habits and your behaviors, your genetics, um, your environment, you know, your beliefs, your headspace. I mean, there's just, this is where coaching becomes like coaching, actually looking at the individual, Um, you know, looking at your biofeedback. How do you feel? How did you feel at the end of the cut? How do you feel five pounds heavier? How do you feel 10 pounds heavier? Presumably with more calories at each of those stages. You know, your leanest self won't be your most comfortable life. Like I've, I've been, Two, 200, you know, 225 pounds, I've been 175 pounds. And I know that even if I'm at maintenance calories at both of those body weights, 225, 175, 50 pound difference, that, that 
that there's a big difference in how I feel even though I think I'm at maintenance calories. Um, and if you want to listen to more about set point, I know that that's a fringe discussion. The beginning discussion is you're in a surplus. What do we want to do about that? But I do think that there's a discussion here of like, assuming you're going to be able to just, because you're at maintenance calories, feel great, never be hungry, and just maintain all your fat loss at every body weight, at every body size and body fatness, is not the case. We can't, not all of us can maintain the same level of leanness with the same amount of comfort based on our genetic hunger and satiety signaling. Cool, super long Q&A. We had a little break in there, so I caught a second win there. And so I appreciate you guys listening. Thank you for everybody who asked a question and I'll see you guys in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.